This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Uh, and now, last night, as I mentioned at the start of the show, I went along to Art Centre Melbourne to see uh, the, the kind of one of the performances in the Big World Up Close series. It was the Modern Maori Quartet, their show Two Worlds. It's beautiful. Kind of uh, take a hanky, you may need it. I was crying by the end of the show. Uh, beautiful singing, great storytelling. Humour and pathos all kind of wrapped up together, uh, as well as an exploration of what it means to be uh, a Maori man living in Aotearoa, New Zealand today. It's one of several shows that are being presented at the Arts Centre as part of the Big World Up Close season. Another of them is called Between Tiny Cities, which I had the very great pleasure of catching at Dance Massive when it premiered in Melbourne uh, back in 2017. Uh, And I bloody loved it. And I'm absolutely delighted to have choreographer Nick Power in the studio uh, and dancers Iraq Myth and Aaron Lim to talk about the show. Guys, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having us, Richard. So, uh, Nick, let's start with you. Uh, In terms of making a work like this, it's about kind of how dance is a language that transforms kind of cultural barriers. So uh, you've got a dancer from Darwin and a dancer from Phnom Penh and using dance as a shared vocabulary, effectively. Where did this come from? Um, it actually grew out of a hip-hop exchange. Um, Iraq's from Phnom Penh, as you, as you mentioned. He's from an organisation and crew called Tiny Tunes. So Tiny Tunes is a um, hip-hop organisation, works with a b- between 80 to 100 young kids each day that otherwise wouldn't have access to education. So they come in and they learn dance and they learn um, uh, Khmer, they learn English, they learn maths and and Iraq was a student there and um, became a teacher. So they came across, so all the teachers and the kind of leaders of that organisation came across to Darwin to hang out with the DCD Rockers and um, and and that's how it started. It really was just these two crews hanging out, getting to know each other, sharing skills, sharing styles, having fun. And then um, and then um, these city rockers reciprocated, went over to Phnom Penh, hung out, got to know Tiny Tunes organisation, and um, really that kind of was fertile ground to sort of build into into a, into a show. It wasn't our um, initial reasoning for it, but that's how it how it started. So quite organically, really. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, Iraq. In in terms of working on a, a show like Between Tiny Cities, uh, if language has been a barrier, sometimes does dance really then allow you to communicate easily uh, in a way that words sometimes can't convey what you want to talk about? The dance, like. So yeah, I, I, I don't understand. Some. That's okay. Yeah, do, do you think that uh, yeah, Richard's asking if um if it, if the if what what you are able to say with your dance is more than words? Uh, yeah, like um, yeah, I dance like about like tricky or something like like teasing, like playing, and then like show about uh, culture dancing, yeah. And uh, Aaron, in terms of kind of language barriers and movement, so movement kind of can transcend kind of a f- like a, a word, a vocabulary. So is it is kind of dance a, a form of communication that is universal? Yeah, I think there's there's something about dance that um, th- 
like especially in hip hop culture and breaking culture sort of where we come from um, there's these these cultural norms and this way that we act and behave and and that's that's just like n- just through the hip hop dance and it's sort of like when we first met there's always this thing of like um trying to suss out each other because you don't really know each other and you you're always trying to figure out you sort of figure out each other by the way that they each other dances you're like oh okay they're actually quite good or you know and and there's that bit of battle even though it's like very friendly and everything there's always this little bit of fronting involved and and it's not until like you we like when we very first met um our two careers were in a studio and it was very like we we're trying to be um friendly but it was a little bit weird and it wasn't until one of the guys threw down a set and then we're like oh okay this is where we're at, where we at and then we did a cipher and we just like it was super organic there was nothing nothing planned about it and that was our communication through dance like um um one of the guys homie did this really dope set and like all right cool so then we started doing different sets and and after that you we had a bit of an understanding um between the two crews and it was yeah all through dance because the english side, like the the speaking side of things wasn't really doing it but as soon as we started busting some moves and it's like ah oh, okay this is where we're at and yeah. so learning about one another through kind of physical movement and physical language then kind of learning to trust each other yeah in terms of kind of constructing the the show then Nick that's kind of grown out of this kind of cross-cultural communication obviously it's also been a fairly organic process but when at what point did you come in as a choreographer to to shape what was already developing I was there from the start so I was um I was with the crews when they met and I was breaking with them a little bit and so on um and really like what Aaron just explained about that standoff and that sort of tension I took, I'm thinking about a west that, side story yeah, <laughs> well I kind of took that into the work a bit it's like you know it wasn't just immediately hey we're cool we're all friends it was sort of like this <clears> tension the standoff and then slowly um you know with these guys over a period of three years that cultural exchange and that friendship blossomed and and became something else and and I feel like that was just reflected in the work and so it, it was just all about um actually the depth of of and 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 the how long we had to kind of just be with each other hang out and understand each other's culture understand each other um through hip-hop and and yeah so that's really i just sort of had the eyes on that and then these guys were just so open as dancers they were just um interested to explore all these different ways that we could come at it and also you know super dope as well great dancers so yeah i feel like we just had this really um fantastic organic open exchange and then i could take that into the choreography without trying you know and just having it as a reflection of that time together iraq is your dance style uh and aaron's dance style how how similar are they or how different are they uh so his style my style is is different uh, like I got my like some natural style. Sometimes they call magic style. Like I do it, I do good, and then after I forget. And then like that's why like yeah. And Aaron he got his own styles like clear. And for me like I I always freestyle by myself. Like sometimes it come by magic style. 
and then sometimes gone. Like that's why Nick he like he, he always put the camera like to record the video. Like when I do some cool styles, and then after it's gone. It's like easy come and easy go. You know, like <laughs> yeah, it's 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 very different. And then the one thing I like create with my my uh, traditional dancing, like uh, yeah, monkey style or something like. Yeah, and then I like to play like a lot. So yeah, that's my style. It was great um, having access to Iraq's traditional Khmer dance styles and the way that he sort of um, fuses it into his hip hop style. It was sort of already there, so we we're able to to uh, push that to the fore and reflect his culture in sort of a subtle way um, through through his the foundation of his hip hop. And Aaron, has your dancing style <coughs> evolved and changed uh, because of the the experience of Kind of working with uh, with Iraq. Yeah, I think um, like any dancer would probably say that their style changes over time. Um, working really intensely with making this show and doing it over and over again um, always sort of gives new new things to your to your style. Um, yeah, it's just. Um, Sorry, what was the question? Well, I was just about wondering if kind of if you had a particular dance style, say three years ago, yeah. kind of, uh, have you noticed changes in your own kind of uh, your own dance style, your own forms as a result of the the interaction and the the performances you've been doing? Yeah, so um, I have a background in martial arts. So I, I did that at a very young age and did it quite intensely, and then I found um, dance like breaking um, and. At first, I didn't really notice it, but you know, as we're making the show and, and doing it, the more I realised that, like, Iraq has his um, Khmer style, but I've also got um, my sort of like martial arts in influence, and it's a bit subtle. But the more I realised that, the more um, I started to lean into it here and there, and 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 it's not super obvious martial arts styles; it's just like quite subtle things. But I'm starting to notice it more and, and enjoy it more and. Yeah, and then pushing a bit more into like um, other aspects of dance as well, like tricking and stuff. Which I was like, oh, uh, I really want to get back into this this sort of martial arts side of things as well. So, yeah, there's just more um, recognizing it through doing this project that I was like, oh, it kind of makes sense hearing you talk about that because my memories of seeing the show uh, in North Melbourne a couple of years ago, the fact that your dance movements were very very precise. Erex, I noticed a more fluid kind of movement. Yeah, so there was um, Nick always we were tossing up um, of a different name of um, what was it? It was uh, uh, Wild Style and the Technician. So yeah. it's like yeah. where where Erex style is just so wild and, yeah, and free, technician. and then mine's very like technical. Yeah, like yeah. yeah, technical. Where I just like all right, yeah. Like in, in the studio is really fun because like. Um, Iraq would just do this crazy thing. We're like, "Whoa, what's that?" And he's like, "Oh, I don't know." And then we'd ha- try really hard to like record him and figure Magic. it out. <laughs> yeah. And then I'd do something, and then um, Nick was like, "Oh yeah, do that again." I'm like, "Okay." And then just do it again because it's like, yeah, it's very different ways of approaching yeah. like dance, and that, uh, it was really fun. That's in so studio. funny. Yeah. Like when I do like the. Magic like style or something, and then Nick like asked me, "Oh, bro, can you do again?" 
What did I do? What did I do? It's a good thing that you had a camera in the studio. Know, yeah, 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 it was really <laughs> handy. No, and I think like uh, the, that difference is where the work is forged. You know, those those differences are you know highlighted in the work, and and that's why I think it um, it rings true because it's sort of a reflection of like the interesting thing. Like Aaron said, the, these kind of um, Khmer styles coming out or the martial arts style out because we were able to dig deep into these guys' sort of movement history, and it all all started coming out, which was awesome. The show we're talking about is called Between Tiny Cities and is on uh, presented by Art Centre Melbourne and Asia Topa, uh, and it's on as part of the Big World Up Close program. Uh, now I'm I'm told it's pretty much booked out. It's sold out. Yeah. Oh. So sorry. Every, there uh, are. Oh, hang on. No, that's right. They released a few tickets, oh. um, yeah, last night. They just had some holding back. So, sorry. Yeah, I should Good, good. So, yeah. uh, I was just thinking, well, this whole conversation has been almost useless because no one can go. But, no, you can. So, uh, you can book at artcentremelbourne.com.au to see Between Tiny Cities. It runs for only 40 minutes and it's recommended for ages 8 and upwards. And I'll give uh, some more details ab- about that in a moment. But, Nick, it's had a pretty successful life, this show. Yeah, we've gone, um, we did a big five week tour of Asia and um, Europe last year. Um, this tour we start at Sydney Opera House, now at Art Centre Melbourne. Next we go to Arnhem Land, so we do a bunch of communities through Arnhem Land, then down through Central Desert, Catherine, Tennant Creek, and then we get these guys go back to Europe. So it's um, it's it's the little show that could. Yeah. Well, I was looking at the tour dates for Darwin, for example, and the fact that, yeah, you've got kind of uh, your car like Catherine High School, and you're doing workshops there as well. So working with some of the kids in Catherine and also out in community as well? Yeah, yeah. So that that sort of stems from... um, So I'm from Darwin and NT and I do a lot of teaching out through... Um, rural NT to a lot of different communities and Nick also does stuff with um, well, used to do stuff with larger Manu which I sort of do now so um, it was always really important for us to you know take this sort of work to the communities so through that um, through our connections to regional um, NT we, we do that so yeah we're going to take the show do some workshops see the kids you know yeah, yeah. it's going to be real fun yeah yeah so, Between Tiny Cities, I highly recommend it. Whether you're a fan of contemporary dance or a fan of kind of hip-hop culture, this is where they kind of they have a battle and they, they fuse and meld and it's a really, really fun piece of work. Uh, so, it's on uh, f- kind of on now until Saturday? Yeah, Saturday night. Saturday night. So, uh, jump online, artcentremelbourne.com.au. There's a handful of tickets for the remaining shows uh, for Between Tiny Cities. I've been chatting with Iraq. Aaron and the choreographer of the show, Nick Power. Guys, thanks so much for coming in. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here. Thank Thank you. you. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Time for us to turn the conversation towards the visual arts. We've got an exhibition on at the Town Hall Gallery in Hawthorne called For Love or money, and I'm joined in the studio by guest curator of the exhibition, Sophia Kai, and one of the participating artists, James Newen. Welcome to you both. Thanks yep. for having us. Very great pleasure. Um, Sophia, talk to us about the brief that you gave the artists for this exhibition. 
Well, I guess starting from the title itself, it's sort of um, exploring or considering this false dichotomy in terms of how artists work in our current sort of capitalist society. This idea that, um, you know, it's you're either a starving artist doing it for love or you're somebody who's... Um, or there's a kind of a negativity attached to being a commercially successful artist, right? Because that means that you are not... You've sold out in some yeah. way. Um, so that's kind of... That was the basis for the title. But actually the exhibition, I think, and in, in how I've brought the artist together, I really wanted to explore um, what it means to work as an artist, what that labour could look like, how that labour is valued within our society, and how artists both sit within... I guess, that larger economic framework, but also perhaps disrupt it or challenge it. So I don't think... I mean, the goal of the show isn't really to provide a solution. It's more to really raise awareness, but also to advocate for the fact that, you know, we um, as a society um, should be supporting artists much more than we are. Well, certainly uh, something that I'm so aware of is that notion of artists going, oh, would you like to work for exposure? Uh, and that kind of notion of it'll be great for your profile, but you can't pay rent with exposure. You can't buy food with exposure. Um, how exploitative is the art world, James? Um, I think the art world is exploitative as in any industry because I guess not only... Are there unpaid internships that occur in the art world? It happens everywhere. And, and I think with the arts, like, in, in a way, we do have more of opportunity to kind of, like, talk about those things and um, kind of, like, step up to our institutions and um, the people that run them and kind of, like, question it. Whereas, like, in a lot of, a lot of other industries, like, I guess maybe they don't have that much flexibility and... Um, yeah, like yeah, I, I think yeah, we, we're we're exploited like anyone else. Um, yeah, and and we do have a role to play in speaking up. Well, certainly, for example, some of the the, the collective artist subcommittee who are represented in the exhibition. Uh, I had uh, a couple of the members on the program not so long ago, talking about one of their projects, looking at kind of arts organisations that were benefiting from the mining sector, for yeah. example, and how kind of. Uh, institutions, galleries, museums and other organisations are complicit in uh, kind of in that kind of environment. So there's a real opportunity for artists to kind of uh, shine a light on practices, interrogate practices and, and encourage us as consumers of art to think about those relationships. Yeah, but definitely there is a responsibility that needs to be taken on from institutional or structural kind of powers that be in kind of addressing that. I mean, ArtsLog, um, sorry, Art, Artist Subcommittee, um, in this exhibition, their work, ArtsLog is actually a really good example of kind of um, bringing more transparency and visibility to some of these issues by asking artists and arts workers to submit their personal experiences of working in this industry and what that has looked like. And, you know, there is both like very good supportive interactions and also ones that are like exploitative or undervalued or um, yeah doing things for exposure for example so I think um, having the conversation is great like that's something that I do acknowledge we are able to do in this industry mm. but yeah it's also about I guess the responsibility of what we do next with with that knowledge because it is it's almost like everybody knows you know you have that conversation and almost all artists will know exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So, what do we go? Like, where do we go from here? Mm -hmm. Now, James, your 
you work kind of uh, you have a, an interdisciplinary practice. So you're working with kind of drawing, installation, video performance, and more. Yeah. Talk to us about uh, the work that you're presenting in for Love or Money, the exhibition at Hawthorne's Town Hall Gallery. Okay, so the um, work that I pr- have presented there is uh, kind of like two pieces so the first piece was kind of lazy it's been already made in 2014 and it was kind of like looking at um joe hockey's uh kind of um differentiation between um people as lifters or leaners. leaners okay yeah and so it's uh pretty much me and my brother lifting and leaning on each other and looking at kind of like um unrecognized labor that artists um use when they recruit family and friends to help them produce work um and the second part that uh that i made for the work is kind of like this uh 3d printed sculpture but only just using the 3d printing plastic and filaments and manually um hand melting them all together so i'm like investing my labor into something that's kind of like automated well, supposedly, yeah. It's, to come back to the the first piece that you said, so, so from twenty fourteen, yeah, yeah. Um, the the arts industry, uh, the art sector would probably fall apart if we didn't have friends and family to rely on. Yeah. It's one of those conundrums of the art world that if we, uh, if any work actually factored in all of the unpaid labour that went into it, uh, it would cost you, I don't know, um, $5,000 to go and see a band playing at, at a, the pub around the corner, yeah. for yeah. example. Why did you want to highlight that particular aspect of, of kind of the industry? Yeah. Um, well, one, one aspect of it was kind of like looking at kind of like immigrant labour um, and how that's undervalued because, you know, like my parents are immigrants, but then like how I as an artist also kind of exploit them <laughs> as, as immigrants to kind of like produce these artworks kind of about them and about our lives. Um, yeah, so I, I think it's actually really fun to kind of like play with these ideas um and also the main thing is that we've got to recognize um how we are exploited and how we exploit ourselves as practitioners i think that's really important sophia talk to us about some of the other artists who are represented in the exhibition yeah, well, so there's um, nine artists and artist collectives um, in total, um, all Australian artists. And I think for me in the selection process, I really wanted to um, give a lot of space for artists to sort of really um, come to this in their own way without... I guess my curatorial style was never to be too prescriptive and I, I like working in a much more collaborative manner, although taking into account that kind of collaboration is a lot of unpaid emotional <laughs> labour, isn't it? Um, so, for example, you know, like being very um, transparent about the fact that, yeah, it's totally fine to ex- show um, existing work that has been shown before because we are not in a position to pay like you know new artist commissions or things like that but also kind of thinking about how bringing those works into like a gallery context might change their meaning so like a good example of that is Stephen Rowell's um, installation work so basically um, you know me and him had a lot of conversations about what kind of works he would show for the show and we came like and, and the decision he made was to basically exhibit 
a number of his previously unsold works, so works that are still in his possession or in his studio, and kind of re um, reconfigure them into a new installation. And so there's like two things happening there. It's also it's about questioning, you know, is something valuable if it hasn't been bought by an institution or bought by a client, but also like how does this new context change or alter the meaning of these objects, particularly in terms of, you know, the relationship between an audience and the artwork. Um, the other, th- um, I mean, some other works have really, um, I mean, James talking about migrant labour, that's something that's also explored in Kay Abood's work, which is really about, um, I mean, what it's like to work as a factory worker or how, um, and that's also drawn on like the narrative of her own familial history as well. So I was really interested in thinking about both labour in a kind of um, artistic sense, but also how that labour itself is situated or contained within, you know, larger ideas about um, work and value and um, what that might mean. And I'm, you know, it's it's not a clear-cut relationship. It's not... It's always a kind of uh, toing and froing, and there's just a lot of... Um, there's a lot of grey areas, and I think that's where I want the exhibition to sit, in that kind of grey area zone. Now, in terms of work and, and labour, James, I know that uh, you are working with one of the other artists in the exhibition, um, uh, Salote Tuali. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so Salote and I have uh, collaborated previously on projects, um, and some of those projects we view them as failures, but also while we collaborate together, like we do produce work and we have presented work, but we've learnt a lot from it being failures i think and 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 i think a lot of the things that go on with kind of like our communities and kind of like how we help and we support each other is kind of like supporting each other through failures and Mm. through you know turning those failures into kind of like learning opportunities and yeah um, yeah What, what defines an artistic failure um we get to define it (laughs) <laughs> so yeah so so we we can decide if something's failed or not like one of the works that we presented a few years ago um with us we were, we got along so well that there was no artistic break <laughs> so, so usually there's a person that says oh my god that's too much cut down but yeah with both of us like we were really into it so like everything was in the artwork <laughs> so it felt like there were like five potential artworks in the one (laughs) and in a way like that's a form of failure like you know like artistically maybe but also it was a way for us to kind of like explore all these ideas that in other instances should would have been shut down um so it's again that gray zone of you know like what how how do you define value in in things yeah which to come back to the that notion of making a new work out of unsold artwork some people would say that because the work hasn't been sold it's therefore on one level a failed artwork but then it still has an aesthetic value even though it doesn't have a monetary value um to to what degree are you hoping uh that this exhibition, Sophia, will encourage not just kind of the arts community but the general public to yeah. to think more about value in all its different meanings and what we kind of think has value and does not. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, one thing that I hope the exhibition can do is really bring to light the fact that, you know, when you go see an exhibition, you are seeing a finished result. You are seeing um, something that has been worked on for a long period of time with a lot of people involved and that's the end product. Um, That is not always 
or even frequently a smooth journey or something that is um, there's no kind of like idea of linearity I guess um, in terms of creative practice and for example talking about a failure like one of the works in the show is Shannon Lyons who's done a wall vinyl based on a reject a rejected exhibition proposal from 2013 that she submitted and wasn't accepted and you know to put that in a public context is, is there's a strength and a vulnerability and kind of sharing that failure and, and that instance that failure with an audience and I think um, you know it's it's kind of a I guess that transparency is very important to me and we can very in, in our kind of capitalist society it's very easy to measure our worth against these potential markers or you know standards that um, that aren't from within from within yourself but are from a structure that's outside of you so I think that's the kind of um, that's the push that I want to um, hopefully have with this exhibition that kind of acknowledgement that um, a failure is not a bad thing and actually you know there is um, a lot that is happening behind closed doors and maybe if we talk about those things in a more open way and we share our successes as much as our failures then we can normalize this kind of conversation and really take um, give us back that agency to kind of determine those things and what they mean to us as well. Yeah, and yeah, like that, that that idea of, you know, just being honest. Like, being honest is something that's really difficult to do uh, as mm. as an artist because there, there is so much vulnerability that comes out of that. And, yeah. And th- there's also the added challenge that honesty is not always welcomed because if, mm. kind of, if somebody at their exhibition says, no, tell me what you really think, you pause and go, do I tell them what I really <laughs> think? Do I mouth a platitude? Kind of, do I change the subject? Uh, yeah. But again, and, and it come, that notion of, of honesty... Uh, with artists kind of revealing what they actually earn, what they make, those kind mm. of conversations mm. as well are so important. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there's so much to unpack. We could sit here for another hour <laughs> kind of easily talking about all of this, but sadly we have run out of time. For Love or Money is the exhibition we've been discussing. It's on at Hawthorne's Town Hall Gallery until the 25th of August. Entry is free. Uh, the gallery is located at 360 Burwood Road, Hawthorne, uh, and you can find out more information on the City of Burundara's website, www burundara.vic.gov.au and uh, you can find the gallery details there Um, so the full URL burundara.vic.gov.au forward slash events forward slash love hyphen or hyphen money Uh, (laughs) alternatively just google Town Hall Gallery Hawthorne (laughs) and you'll find the details I've been chatting with guest uh, curator Sophia Kai and artist James Newen thank you both so much for coming in yeah thanks Richard Triple R. Opening next week uh, and currently in previews at uh, the Comedy Theatre in Melbourne uh, is a musical called Come From Away. And I have a confession to make. When it was announced that this musical was coming to Melbourne, I was a little bit cynical. I was thinking, what is a musical about 9-11 doing coming to Melbourne? And then I realised it's so much more than a musical about uh, the events of 9-11. It's about community. It's about kind of the things that unite us rather than the things that we fear and that divide us. Uh, Joining me in the studio to talk about Come From Away is its director from the original Broadway production, Christopher Ashley, uh, and musical director, Luke Hunter. Guys, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, 
Christopher, when did you get started with this show? Where did you kind of step in on its journey? Because I know it, uh, in terms of its kind of creative development, it started, you know, I believe that students were working on it, very early iterations of it. That's right. I, I joined about five years ago, but um, before I got involved, there was a, a first workshop production at a college in, uh, in, in Toronto called Sheridan College and a couple of readings. Um, and then um, once I got involved, we did a, a, a workshop and um, it started a, a kind of tour of uh, regional theaters around America. We went to my theater in La Jolla that I run and Seattle and Washington, D.C. and Toronto and then finally Broadway and around the world. Now, it's been getting rapturous receptions and I can having listened to kind of uh, the the cast recording I can understand why Luke how did you first hear about the show and what did you first hear about it it has an Australian connection so one of the producers that's worked on it overseas is Rundy Rigby from New Theatricals who's Australian and I've worked with him here before so I'd sort of heard he in conversation him talking about this show that was in development that was really interesting and he was really excited about um and so i'd sort of been keeping tabs on that that way through his conversations and um when uh, i sort of got brought involved in the project i was taken over to the states last year to see it and so i saw it there for the first time and was really kind of overwhelmed with it really i it was so beautiful and that just filled me with so much joy so I was so excited to get involved in it here yeah one of the things that kind of I've I've been I've learned about the production is just that that word joy is a very appropriate one there's uh, a real sense of hope uh, about it and it seems you know world that is currently so divided socially politically social media fragmenting us into smaller and smaller groups the idea of uh, a piece of musical theater based on on a true story uh, after September 11 attacks uh, planes from all all over the world, landing in a very small town, and the small town saying, we will open our arms to these people. It's a remarkable story. It is. It's really a story of generosity and kind of people behaving beautifully on the worst day of their lives. Uh, and it's, 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 it takes place in this very small town. Uh, it had about a population of 9,000. And um, that week, 7,000 uh, strangers from all around the world were kind of deposited on their doorsteps. Um, and they fed them and they housed them and um, took extraordinary care of these kind of really traumatized, almost refugees. Uh, the fact that, for example, uh, people would be desperately trying to get in touch with their loved ones to say, our plane is safe, we're fine, and kind of complete strangers saying, come to my house, use my phone, call as many people as you need, and then let us feed you and let us show you around. That notion of, again, that kind of the... The human nature of the story, and every kind of newspaper editor in the world is always looking for giving me a nice human nature story. But there's something yeah. so incredibly heartfelt and warm about this story. I, I didn't. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. It, it is. It is. It shows a community of people uh, responding in a way that I think we would all hope that we would respond in a similar way, uh, and. You know, as a proud Melbourneian, I think we like to think of ourselves as a community uh, and smaller community groups of communities that look after each other. And we we've seen that in times of crisis in the state, and um, and so I, I think it for me it really does kind of resonate. But there's something really special about watching it happen and and thinking. You know, I I, I hope that in a time of crisis that I would respond in 
in kind and in a manner that these wonderful people did at that time. It's amazing to do a show all about real people. You know, we, we in researching the show, we spent quite a lot of time in, in Newfoundland, uh, and the winters are incredibly cold, and the sense of community there is so strong. The music has this very Irish influence. It's like at the Bowron and the fiddle and the, the pipes. Um, but the, the most of the show is, uh, is taken from actual things people said in being interviewed about those events, and they're incredible storytellers. They're just, they're funny, and they're emotional emotional and they're open and they know right when um, to uh, to tell a joke and, and kind of puncture anything that could ever turn sentimental. It must have been an enormous challenge for Irene and David, the show's creators, doing hundreds if not thousands of hours of interviews and then going, right, how do we condense this down into an actual show? And so I know that they've uh, some characters have effectively been merged into one, for example, uh, or uh, and others. They've had the classic line of "kill your darlings." It's kind of that's a beautiful song or a beautiful story, but it has to be cut out of the show. Christopher, you as the the director of the the Broadway production, the the challenge. I one of the challenges of many, I imagine, would be how do you make a show like this. Um, emotionally truthful without being saccharine because I'm sure there could be the tendency to to lean into melodrama. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, the, 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 the sort of joke we would tell ourselves is we're trying to tell a story of uh, 16,000 people with 12 actors, right? So part of the actual pleasure of, of rehearsing it is watching these actors transform and transform again and learn all of these incredibly different dialects. And it's kind of a bravura acting task for this small group of actors to tell this immense epic story. But yeah, no, we're very um, aware uh, and always think about taking our cue from the Newfoundlanders, who, when they're talking about this, manage to be incredibly generous, incredibly warm, and never sentimental. Talk to us, uh, Luke, about kind of the music as well. As music director, kind of what kind of tone and style uh, can people expect if they haven't, if they're just coming to this out of the blue? I think it's actually a really great show to kind of come to and not necessarily know the music, because I think the music. You know, is very evocative of the of the town. Um, it has that Celtic tradition, so it, it's un- unlike any other musical that I've ever um, conducted before. Because you do have, you know, the the push button accordion. You have the bower on. You have we have a, a player, Matt Horsley, who plays eighteen whistles, the Ilian pipes, and two Irish flutes. Like, wh- where do you ever hear that in a mu- piece you of music? You certainly theater? don't hear it in the Rocky Horror Show or Kinky Boots. That's for correct. Example. Yes, I've never had to hire that guy before. Um, and and uh, and a fiddle player too, and mandolin and bouzouki, and um, so it, it's very evocative of of the heritage of the town. But the show also has a um, a uh, pop folk sensibility to it as well. There are other instruments, like there's an, an udu that we use um, for one of the Middle Eastern characters. That so it so it is kind of constantly in flow uh, and. Uh, tries to highlight the, um, the the different character situations as well. So it's it, it's through composed, which is by and large, which is really interesting, and the music's really there to kind of serve the story and serve the the action of what the actors are doing on the stage. It sounds like you've it's this has challenged you as a show, given the the, yeah. the kind of different instruments in instrumentation, for example, that you've not worked with before. Yeah, I think that's that's a, the real thrill of it is you know that there are it's a band of eight and four of us, I guess, are sort of you know have a large music theatre career, and there are four that are 
you know, haven't done as much. And, and that's a real joy in sort of bringing those two musical worlds together is kind of really exciting. Has the production challenged you in a similar way, Christopher? Um, yeah, it's one of the hardest things I've ever had to work on. I, mean, I was in New York during 9-11, so um, I started this with a lot of um, kind of pent-up, unresolved feelings about that day. Um, and it's been such a relief to actually be able to attach some some good stories to what was, you know, one of the worst days of most of the people I know's um, life. I was anxious about coming outside of North America with the... The, would this be as resonant uh, um, in, in other continents and other places? Um, and it does feel like the question of how do we take care of strangers? How, who are, what is our community in relation to outsiders and, and other people? And how welcoming are we? It seems as, as, as hot and vibrant an issue here um, as it is in America or Britain right now. Um, sadly, there's very few places in the world right now um, that know how to take care of strangers very well. Well, this country's uh, record when it comes to looking after foreigners and strangers is sadly not particularly good, So, uh, which, again, makes this kind of musical so potent and so important at this particular time, I think, because, as I said, it's not a, a, a September 11 musical. It's a musical about hope and caring for strangers and connecting with strangers. And I, having read about the town of Gander uh, in Newfoundland, where Come From Away is set, and read the stories of some of the, 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 the people who uh, kind of come from away by plane, uh, people who fell in love while they were kind of effectively refugees in Gander and people who returned to Gander regularly to visit the people who cared for them. The sense of connection that run, of human connection that run through this show is, seem, feels incredibly rich. I can absolutely see why it was turned into a musical. It's an amazing story. I, I love what you just said. I, we often think about it as a nine twelve musical. It's, it's what you do in response to difficult moments. Um, and um, definitely in, in America the responses in people's lives to 9-11 was to change everything, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find someone to love. I'm going to break up my relationship because I'm not happy. I'm going to change my job. I'm going to go somewhere else to live. And so we're watching all these people who are incredibly in a moment of real upheaval and change. Um, and those are the moments that um, I think breakthroughs happen. The musical Come From Away is opening in Melbourne next week. It's in previews now, and I'll uh, give the, the URL and some of those details in just a moment. But given that this is the kind of the Australian premiere of it, let's talk about the, the cast that are performing and what are they like? Um, the extraordinary group of uh, 12 inst- individuals on stage, eight musicians, six standbys, and they're also about to be joined by all the actual characters are, are coming in for the opening. So we're about to have a um, arriving in planes, uh, Newfoundlanders and come from aways in huge numbers. So it's about to be a massive party. But I've just been so impressed by the the kind of quality of the um, Australian actor actor training. Their work with dialects is better than any I've ever seen. They all have an ear for it, and they're all masterful and subtle and uh, bold uh, about that. And they also all bring uh, a real spirit of adventure to rehearsal. So I'm all the way in love with this cast. Now, I have to confess, uh, as well as my cynicism when I heard about the musical, which I've how happily resolved and put away, um, uh, listening to the uh, the Broadway cast recording has made me tear up a couple of times. Um, I, Luke, when you're kind of conducting, for example, as music director, when you're working with all these musicians... Do you get caught up in the emotion of the story as well, or are you yeah. so focused on doing your job? <laughs> no, there's a bit of both going on. Like, it's, it's a, 
uh, it's a hundred minutes straight through of like supreme concentration. But I was, we were just saying outside, there are still times where I, like unsuspectingly get really kind of swept up in the emotion of it and you know have to swallow hard and take a deep breath and (laughs) keep going on but it it is very affecting in the often it's it's the the moments of kindness that are displayed that are the most moving to me that you know you sort of um sort of really have to kind of take stock while you while you're sort of still plowing forward and and going on but that's uh you know some conducting something that's really resonant and is moving you is a really like special gift to have i think christopher do you can you sit outside it and watch it uh kind of on opening night will you be caught up in the emotion of the story or will will you be analyzing and thinking i have to give this direct this actor this note after the show or whatever that's one of the things i love about opening night is um you spend weeks in the theater with the cast micromanaging and micro investigating every single moment and then finally, you know, on opening night, you can't give any more notes. So you actually have to be an audience member for a moment. And I, I love that with this piece. The musical is called Come From Away. Uh, if you jump online, comefromaway.com.au, you'll find more information about the show, the cast, the creative team, the true story uh, that has inspired it. It's on at the Comedy Theatre, 240 Exhibition Street in Melbourne. Uh, I'm going to see it next Friday night. I am uh, have to make sure I take at least a couple of tissues or hankies because yep. I get the feeling I'm going to need them. Yep. And I'm really <laughs> looking forward to it. Uh, I suspect it's going to have a very long run in Melbourne. Gentlemen, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us. Thank you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.